Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you for joining us in worship this morning. As Pastor Dave said, we are in the season of Lent, a time of prayer, of fasting, of reflecting on Christ's journey to the cross. And just invite you to prayerfully consider how you want to walk through uh, this season of Lent together. You know, we often give up some things that we like in Lent, you know, things that actually bring us joy, like chocolate and coffee and so forth. And if the Lord leads you to do that, fine. But we need, like, things that bring us joy in our life. So how about instead give up anger? How about instead give up greed and gossip and all the other kinds of things that are toxic? Think about that and what that might look like uh, in your life. We are leading up to Holy Week, as you know. This year we will have a Monday, Thursday service. We'll also have a Good Friday service, but this year we've been invited to join a black church in Harrisburg for an ecumenical service. We'll be telling you more about that as we get closer. We're really excited about partnering uh, with New Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church in Harrisburg to do that. And of course, Easter, you may have seen the uh, announcement up on the slides. If you're interested in baptism, let us know. We hope to baptize some folks on Easter. Uh, but let me make one quick little announcement here about Maundy Thursday. Uh, we want to return to uh, Maundy Thursday in full force. Uh, if you've grown up in Brethren in Christ Church, uh, you know that there is a love feast tradition around Maundy Thursday. We want to continue that. And Jonathan Owens, Jonathan, are you here? Just raise your hand. Would you just go ahead and stand, Jonathan? Jonathan is the new leader of our Maundy Thursday care team. Thanks, Jonathan. If you want to be a part of this, helping to make us simple meal, helping with communion or the service itself uh, or the feet washing, uh, please see Jonathan or reach out to myself, the office, or Tom George, our chair of the deacons. We want to continue those traditions. And again, we'll say more about that as we get closer. But if you're interested in helping us to do that and continue it from here uh, moving forward, please let us know. All right? Now that that's out of the way. Here's the sermon series summary, and you can find this in your bulletin. It says this, biblical scholar and acclaimed author N.T. Wright says that every worldview must explain seven signposts that we presently experience as broken and unattainable. That is justice, love, spirituality, beauty, freedom, truth, and power. You can see those words on the wall behind me here. He argues that Christianity present, uh, presents a compelling and relevant explanation for why these signposts are broken, but also how these markers point to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus as the start of new creation. So I hope that you'll join us on this Lenten series journey, Broken Signposts, as we explore how the Christian faith 
is a vibrant and coherent vision that makes sense of the world and provides hope and guidance for our future. You know, this series is based on the book, Broken Signpost. You can get a copy of that at uh, Amazon if you want to read that and follow along in the series that way. I will be using some stuff from each chapter, but expounding uh, on that as well. Uh, the book is a follow-up to the classic Simply Christian, and I do think that it has become a, a classic, Simply Christian, Why Christianity Makes Sense. So if you're interested in looking at that book, I'll also uh, be pulling from it as well through this series. And so in Broken Signposts, Wright uses the Gospel of John. So we're going to do that as well because the Gospel of John, he's going to show us, reveals what our faith has to say about these broken signposts, how they point to Christ and his kingdom and new creation. So again, I encourage you to get that book if uh, you want to read that and follow along. If you're taking notes this morning, I've entitled this first message, The Deeper Magic of God's Justice. Maybe wondering, what is that all about? I didn't think we were supposed to believe in magic. I'll come to, back to that uh, uh, by the end. It'll make sense. We can feel it in our bones, can't we? The world is broken. It's not as it should be. Uh, most of us want to live in a world that is fair and just. So why then can't we seem to rid of, of evil and injustice? And so as we'll discover throughout this series, the Gospel of John offers us answers to these basic questions and more. And this morning, we're going to see how John reveals that our ideas and systems of justice are flawed. And not just that, but we are flawed. This first message of our series, we're going to see how John identifies our longing for justice, a justice that always seems to be just out of reach. It's broken. It's a broken signpost that points to our need for salvation and God's deeper justice that can only come through Christ and the power of his spirit. Now let's ask the spirit together if he would open up our hearts and minds as we look to the scriptures now. Father, we do give you our hearts this morning. We give you our minds. And we ask Holy Spirit that you would speak to us now, words that would enlighten us, words that would convict us if we need that, words that would challenge us to be like Christ, words that would comfort, words that would inspire. Oh, give that to us, Lord. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Think back to your earliest memory of knowing right and wrong. And specifically, think back to an experience of being wronged or treated unfairly. Think back to your earliest memory of that. Do you remember feeling hurt? Do you remember thinking, this isn't right? This isn't fair? I've been mistreated. Do you have that memory in your head? Now let me ask you, did you get justice? Was the wrong made right? As I try to think back to my earliest memory, I remember 
as a kindergarten, kindergartner being on the playground. And in my memory, I was chasing this girl I had a crush on. Now, I, again, I think my perspective is accurate, but as, as, as men are discovering, that's not always the case, uh, that this girl was enjoying the chase. <laughs> that was my perception. And as I was doing this, there was another kid who I think also liked this girl who was trying to restrain me, keep me from chasing this crush I had on a first grader. And I remember he came up behind me and he grabbed me so that I was kind of like this and couldn't go anywhere. And he'd done this several times in the chase. I'd asked him to stop and he wouldn't stop. And I just remember my little kindergartner brain thinking, this, this is not right. Why is he doing this? We're, ha- we're trying to have fun here. And, and he's, he's, he's doing this to me, and I wish that he would stop. And after telling him several times, he's holding me like this, so I'm restrained like this. And all I knew to do to get him to stop was this. Really hard and really fast. Now, this was before I became an Anabaptist. <laughs> before I believed in pacifism. But I remember as I... He stopped, he let go, and I, as I turned around, I looked at him, and it was, it was horrifying what I saw. It's, it is stuck in my memory, a mouthful of blood. And I'm sure in, in my kindergarten mind, it was probably much worse than it actually was, but nevertheless, it so frightened me that I ran and hid, and they had these concrete culverts, uh, you know, stacked on each other in the playground, you know, real safe, right? But that was the way we did it back in the 80s. And so I hid in one of those things and just wept and cried. I thought I was like going to prison or something. I thought my life was over. And thankfully, the teacher had mercy on me and basically said, hey, well, you shouldn't have been chasing him and holding him like that. So if there are any kindergartners in the room, don't do that. Uh, go, go tell your teacher what's happening and, and don't solve it with violence. But then there was another time, and this also was in kindergarten, and I don't want you to think that year was traumatic for me. It really wasn't. I have fond memories of that. But I was in kindergarten, and I, I remember sitting in class and like feeling the urge, I've really got to go to the bathroom. And we actually had a bathroom in the classroom. And so I went to the teacher, a couple different times and said, I've really got to go to the bathroom. And there was, a, there was a girl in the bathroom and she was taking a long time in the bathroom, right? Even at kindergarten. So, so I kept going, I kept saying, David, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to be patient. Well, the third time I went up to the teacher, I said, Miss Burrow. <laughs> you know, and I, and I felt even in my, at that age, it, I, I was, there was some injustice, right? Because then the teacher like almost kind of scolded me and I remember my mom had to come and bring me a pair of clothes and no one seemed to quite understand that I had a really small bladder and that I really tried to hold it but I couldn't. Well maybe you can think of some other examples, early memories of what feels like injustice to you and things that have not been made right. But one reason I bring up these which may not seem like that big a deal but I want to point this out to us. You know, you don't have to teach a sense of justice to children, do you? 
You, you really don't. I mean, they need to be guided. They need to be shaped. They do need to be taught morals and values, of course. But there is this inner sense of fairness and unfairness with children. From an early age, we have an innate sense of right and wrong and what is just and what is unjust. And when something's wrong, we have a desire to fix it or at least see it fixed. But you know, it's not like a broken toy, this injustice in, in, in the real world, especially as, as we grow up. It's not like a broken toy. It's not like a broken arm or even broken teeth. <laughs> because no matter how hard we try, we can't seem to fix injustice. And it's not because we're not trying, is it? The United States is a, a nation of laws. Our country was founded by men who believed that the creation and sustainability of a just society is possible. And since 1789, Congress has enacted over 30,000 statutes. <laughs> Think about that. To enforce the law in the land, there are multiple courts in each state and commonwealth. There are state courts, county courts, municipal courts. The federal government has 94 district courts, 13 circuit courts, and the Supreme Court. Right? But yet we, we still can't manage to get justice. In his book, Simply Christian, N.T. Wright says, and yet we have a sense that justice itself slips through our fingers. He says sometimes it works. Often it doesn't. Innocent people get convicted. Guilty people are let off. The bullies and those who can bribe their way out of trouble get away with wrongdoing. Not always, but often enough for us to notice and to wonder why. People hurt others badly and walk away laughing. Victims don't always get compensated. Sometimes they spend the rest of their lives coping with sorrow, hurt, and bitterness. The same thing is going on in the wider world. Countries invade other countries and they get away with it. Sometimes they spend the rest of their, their, their lives doing this. The rich use the power of their money to get even richer, while the poor, who can't do anything about it, get even poorer. And most of us scratch our heads and wonder why and then go out and buy another product whose profit goes to the rich company. Wright says, I don't want to be too despondent. There is such a thing as justice, and sometimes it comes out on top. Brutal tyrannies are overthrown. Apartheid was dismantled. Sometimes wise and creative leaders arise and people follow them into good and just actions. Serious criminals are sometimes caught. They're brought to trial. They're convicted and punished. Things that are seriously wrong in society are sometimes put splendidly to rights. New projects give hope to the poor. Diplomats achieve solid and lasting peace. But just when you think it's safe to relax, it all goes wrong again. And even though we can solve a few of the world's problems, at least temporarily, we know perfectly well that there are others we simply can't and won't. So clearly, all the laws in the world can't stop evil and injustice. Even if you have a law in the books, while it can certainly help, and in some cases quite a lot, at most it restrains and deters people from doing wrong. Let's be honest, if it wasn't for the speed limit, some of you would fly down the road at 100 miles per hour, won't you? Laws, they can't change a person's sinful heart. 
So there's limits to laws and what laws can do. A law can't touch the racism that resides deep within people. A law can't root out greed and covetousness, lust and pride. And if you're rich enough and have power and privilege, there are ways of getting around the laws that are intended to make a just and fair society. So clearly Lady Justice, she's not blind. She's partial to the rich and to the powerful. And so what we have here is a broken signpost. Justice is good, but we can't seem to achieve it. Why not? And how does the Christian faith make sense of this frustrated longing? Would you open up your Bible with me to the Gospel of John? This is where we will begin. We're going to look at a few different passages from the Gospel of John. We'll start with John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 16. You're probably familiar with these first couple of verses, but let's keep reading and see what comes after it as well. John chapter 3, beginning with verse 16. For this is how God loved the world. Now I'm reading from the New Living Translation here. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact, God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. What is John saying here? Maybe you're so familiar with this passage, it's hard to hear, but may we hear that. See, John's gospel presents God's story as a struggle between the light and the darkness. Did you see that? On page 13 of his book, Broken Signposts, Wright says, God's light will expose the evil deeds done in darkness. Justice then is a manifestation of God's love. So the coming of God's light and love into the world is all about God's putting everything right in the end. But what does this mean? It means that a final passing of judgment is needed and will come. There's a couple different words in Greek for the word judge. When it says Jesus didn't come to judge the world, it is that he didn't come to condemn it, right? He didn't come to condemn the world, but, but let's not get this part wrong. Jesus did come to sort it out. He will sort it out. Let's go now a couple chapters over to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, beginning verse 22.
Jesus is speaking. He says, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son, speaking of himself, absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins. They will have already passed from death into life. And remember when Jesus speaks of eternal life here, he's not just talking the longevity of life, the life to come, but a quality of life, the age to come life that is broken in from the future into the present. A quality of life that can be known now. Verse 25, he says, I assure you that the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God. Notice it's like Jesus referring to human beings as if they're like dead stone. They will, they will come alive hearing the voice of Christ and those who listen will live. The Father has life in himself and he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. And he has given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. What is Jesus saying? First, God the Father has given Christ the role of judge. We can't miss that. And this, brothers and sisters, is a good thing that Jesus is judge and someone like ourselves is not. You see, Jesus is not partial Jesus doesn't have favorites. Jesus sees all things perfectly, and Jesus is gracious and merciful and forgiving. While we have a great longing for the world to be set right, only in God will true justice come to the cosmos. This is what John wants us to see. One reason being because we ourselves are broken and not as we should be. This is why we can't fix injustice. Well, you see, we're told the disciples we have nothing to fear. You see, we've been pardoned by the great judge. And N.T. Wright points out that part of the hope that the Christian faith gives us is the knowledge that God will not allow sin and death to get the last word. This is central to the good news about Jesus. This is part of our hope in the gospel that God will sort it out. We've said this many times here at Grantham. Judgment. Judgment isn't bad. Judgment is good. It, it's, it's sorting it all out. It really just means what side of the judgment are you on? So we need to remember as we read the Gospel of John, this is a book about how the whole world is being put right at last. And Tom Wright says it's a book about justice. It's about God sorting out the world. And so it's important to keep this in mind because we'll encounter two dark realities as we read the Gospel of John. Number one, that Jesus himself will be an innocent victim of injustice in an empire that championed law and order. Jesus is a victim of injustice. And number two, that there is an unseen adversary that creates and exacerbates injustice in the world. More on that in just a minute. But first, let's look at how the justice of God looks much different than our own. Turn now to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. 
let us read about the justice of God here. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. The crowd, the crowd soon gathered and he sat down and he taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery and they put her in front of the crowd. Now it makes you wonder how it is they caught her in the act of adultery and it also makes you wonder where is the man. But nevertheless, verse four, teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in an act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? Now, even without knowing a lot about the Jewish context here, you can see what they're up to. They want to, to discover if Jesus is going to obey the law or not. They're trying to trap Jesus because they've seen and heard him in other places not seem to abide by the law. Verse 6 they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, I know if you've grown up in the church, you've read this before, this is a mystery. We don't know what Jesus is writing. It, it's not uncommon for teachers of philosophy and even religion to doodle in the dirt. Was he writing out their sins as they stood around ready to condemn? Maybe Jesus was writing emojis, I don't know, <laughs> the angry face or, or a smiley face or a face with a teardrop. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, because Jesus is calling out their hypocrisy here, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, where your accusers, didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I go and sin no more. Church, notice the guardians of the law are wanting to know if Jesus is going to keep the law. And Jesus knows what they're trying to do, but he turns the tables on them. <laughs> you know, as you're reading the gospels, you can just see this way Jesus has of turning the tables, of asking them, better questions, kingdom questions. And Jesus points out here two things. Number one, that we're all guilty of sin and in need of mercy and grace. And when you're pointing a finger, there are three pointing back at you, as the saying goes. And number two, there is a justice, you see here, that seeks to restore a person to right relationship. It's not just punitive. It's not uh, retributive. Rather, God's justice is restorative. Therefore, ours as followers of Jesus should be as well. So the Pharisees, they obviously failed in their accusations at this point. But as we all know, they just keep on accusing until the Lord's death. 
But again, Jesus sees these accusations, this legalism, this mob mentality as a result of the great adversary and accuser that works behind the scenes as a sinister, anti-creation, anti-light, anti-love, anti-justice force. And Jesus wants us to, uh, to see, and as John in his gospel wants us to see, this must be dealt with for shalom and for true justice to be known on the earth. The Lord has to do something. In John chapter 12, I have this one on the screen for you. A few chapters later, Jesus says, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. John said he said this to indicate how he was going to die. You see, for Jesus, the real culprit here is the devil himself. You know, Paul will say this later in Ephesians 6, that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of darkness in high places. So the real culprit is the devil, a dark personal force behind the evil and death that has defaced and corrupted God's good world. The Satan, which in Hebrew means accuser, means one who oppresses, is the real villain and must be defeated if the world is to be rescued. Why? Why? Well, there are two parts to this. The first one is what we would call natural evil. Things like earthquakes and hurricanes and cancer and mosquitoes. You see, there was an early church uh, writer in the second century named Athenagoras who said that Satan was originally an angel of the Lord, but has become the spirit which is about matter who was created by God just as the other angels were and entrusted with the control of matter and the forms of matter. Think about that. This would certainly explain Satan's role in a groaning creation. And it just baffles my mind at times when we see these terrible examples of what we'd call natural evil and we attribute them to God how this is a stumbling block for people coming to the God who looks like Jesus, but rather attribute it to the evil one. Oh, maybe not every single event can we say the devil did it, but certainly somewhere in the mix is the force of the evil one causing the domino effect. The other part of that is, is human evil, right? And the New Testament teaches that Satan actually tempts people to sin, inspires false teaching, creates doubt and fear, incites hatred of Christians. It tells us the devil exploits anger and rage. One Christian writer says the devil lives in an angry temper. Mm. In the temptations of Christ, which we often recognize this first Sunday of Lent, it's made clear that Satan has great power over all the kingdoms of the world. This is one of the temptations. He offers Jesus, so you're the son of God. I can give you all of those kingdoms if you'll just follow me, if you'll just worship me, if you'll do things my way. Notice Jesus doesn't dispute it. He doesn't say, oh, you're, you're just lying. You don't have that kind of power. No, he does. According to Jesus, he has the power. He has the power to steal away the good news from the hearts of the lost. 
He's the ruler of the air, says in Ephesians. He's the prince of demons, Jesus himself said. And he has the power to blind people's minds to the truth. And think about this one, even to fuel a mob with demonic energy. You ever notice that about a crowd? Seems to take on a supernatural sort of effect. There's more going on there that meets the eye. How does Jesus defeat this kind of enemy? Well, notice he said when he's lifted up from the earth. If you flip over to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the second part of that verse, it says this. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Now, how does this happen? How does this happen? My friends, it begins through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about this sort of justice of God. You see, that there's several ways that we can, we can look at it. Jesus was our substitute. Yes. He took away all of our sins by taking them upon himself and nailing them to the cross. Yes. He received the wrath that we accrued for ourselves, certainly. But he also paid a ransom to free us from slavery and bondage to the devil. His death has released us from sin and Satan's power, not only from his power to oppress us as individuals, but also entire systems of oppression. Much like how a, a mob, a violent mob, takes on a demonic effect, so can those oppressive systems of government. And it's through the cross that Jesus overcame evil and injustice with sacrificial love. And as Paul would say, this is foolishness to the Gentiles. But it's not foolishness to us. To us, it is the power of God, amen? You see, Jesus laid down his life. Jesus won by dying, not by killing, and somehow mysteriously reversed Satan's work. As the Apostle Paul once wrote, Jesus disarmed the powers of injustice that are fueled by Satan. He says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, when you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, do you see the irony in this? And when Jesus, or Paul rather, refers, both of them refer to the armed powers and authorities, it's not just the human authorities that they have in mind, but also the satanic ones, the spiritual evil in high places. Jesus disarmed them. He took away their weapons. He took away their power, you see. You said they intended to make a, a public spectacle of Jesus, to make a, an example of Jesus. That this is what happens to would-be messiahs. They even hung a, a sign over his head. But rather, through that, God turned it back on them. 
Eugene Peterson in the message puts verse 15 this way. He says, he stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and he marched them naked through the streets, exposing their injustice, exposing their ways as weak and powerless. This is what the justice of humanity, the best of our justice can do. It crucifies the Son of God. To help us reflect even further upon this mystery, so we try to get our minds around God's deeper justice. You might remember the way C.S. Lewis retold the gospel story in the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You see, Lewis imagined what it might look like if Christ were to come to another world, a world of talking lions and beavers and fawns. He imagined what it would look like if Christ came to this world of Narnia. And so in Narnia, Jesus is Aslan the lion, the king of Narnia. The devil is a witch who has brought a never-ending winter to the world. For those of you who know this story, there are four children. These four children represent the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these children, they find their way into Narnia through a magical wardrobe. They're quickly caught up into the Narnian story of injustice and oppression where evil reigns. And one of them, Edmund, who was lured away by the witch and betrays his family, and Aslan is held captive by the witch. Aslan and his people, they want Edmund back. But according to Narnian law, a traitor must die on the stone table. So in order to secure his release, Aslan makes a deal with the evil witch, his own life for Edmund's. The witch releases Edmund thinking that she is getting what she really wanted all along, the death of Aslan the king, the savior, the one who would sort it all out. You see, she knows the so-called deep magic of Narnia, but her dark, twisted mind makes her unable to understand that there is a deeper magic from before the dawn of time. And so she, along with her minions, kill Aslan on the stone table. And just when the four children and all of Narnia thought it was all lost, Aslan reappears. The children ask, how can this be? What does this mean? And Aslan replies, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a deeper magic still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness, into the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we're being invited to see this morning. There is a deeper magic of God's justice. It's restorative, not retributive. 
not punitive. It's a long suffering. It is willing to die rather than kill. It trusts in power under, not power over. It believes that real change comes from confessing and repenting of our sins by, by, accepting, by accepting, you see, the one who is able to redeem us and able to exchange our heart of stone for a heart of flesh. It's a deeper justice that takes up the cross in order to experience resurrection life. And folks, it's the only way that we shall ever be saved. You see, law and government, they have their place. Paul talks about that in Romans 13. But in order for the world to be renewed, restored, resurrected, to usher in the coming of the king, the church must believe and embody the deeper magic of God's justice. This is our calling. This is the way. My friends, there is a broken signpost called justice. May the Lord help us to see that its fulfillment is found in Christ. As you think about this deeper magic of God's justice, here are some questions that help us reflect and respond together. And Pastor Dave will give us some instructions on what we're asking you to do this morning. Number one, what ways do you see and experience injustice as a broken signpost that requires God's intervention? What do you think about that? For your life personally, what ways do you see and experience injustice as a broken signpost that requires God's intervention? Maybe you just need to come to terms with that this morning. We're not going to be able to sort it out in the way that we do justice without the deeper magic. Number two, in view of God's deeper magic of restorative justice, what ideas or positions might you need to reconsider? Maybe your sense of justice is this. (laughs) But you're seeing the deeper magic. You're seeing a better way. Would you let the Spirit speak to you and apply that to your life? And then number three. How is the Spirit inviting you to work for justice while also pointing to others to the God who will someday save us. Telling others about this deeper magic. Father, we have been so conditioned by retributive, punitive justice that we can't see the foolishness in trying to teach people not to kill by killing them. Would you open up our eyes to see other contradictions 
and our ideas of justice. Lord, we know that that government and laws are necessary to restrain evil. We ask that you be with those, Lord, who are in that line of work. Lord, for us who are Christians, we ask that you would empower us to be your people, your deeper magic people who believe in the justice of heaven, who are willing to take up the cross so that we might experience resurrection. So Holy Spirit, speak to us now for your servants are listening. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I mentioned earlier that there will be congregational participation in our Lent visuals this year. So here are the directions. Every week during Lent, we'll respond to the morning's message by artistically depicting the word of the day, so today is justice, on a little cardboard signpost. So during our closing song, you're invited to come to one of the art stations in the sanctuary. There's one there, one there, there's also one in the back. And you're invited to create the word on the signpost in a way that is significant to you. You can simply write the word, you can write the word a little more creatively, you can put some sort of design on it, you can write on the painted sign, uh, painted side or the cardboard side. And you can uh, drop the signpost in one of the baskets on your way out, or if you so choose, you can also do this after the service is over and then put it in the basket. You could also just take it home during the week, work on it in your own time, and then bring it back. We'll collect these signposts every week, and then what we're going to do is we're going to display all of the cardboard signposts on our side wall over here to symbolically represent our congregation's commitment to the way of Jesus during Lent.